Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. All right, guys, we are in Illinois. Yep, back in Illinois, we are not remote this week, which is nice. Yes. To actually see Eden's face. Your yeah. beautiful, beautiful face, Nicole. Out of right my in front house. of me. Out of my house no more. In your Spelman Mortuary shirt again. Of course. It's so cozy and comforting. Where is the new season of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, by the way? I don't know. I hope it's coming out soon. I know. I feel like I was like all ready for Halloween. Damon told me that he doesn't like it. I'm going to have to put that away for now because I have a story to tell you. And you probably have a lot of feelings about that. I have a lot of strong feelings about that. Anyway, I did round up some weird uh, Illinois laws for you. Okay, cool. They're literally a smattering of weirdness because I just, Illinois, wow, what is going on? So many random laws. So let's start with the first one I found. It's actually illegal to hang things from your rearview mirror in the state of Illinois. So no air freshener. No for air you. freshener. No fuzzy dice. Uh, no certain, Mardi Gras beads. Exactly. Even certain GPS uh, devices, if you have them too high on your your windscreen, it wow. will trigger a ticket. No fingers or teeth from the victim that you just murdered. I know how drab. Right. Boring. Boo. This one's pretty funny, and I did cackle a little bit when I read it. So, like most parts of the country, you have to be 21 years old to drink alcohol legally. Yes. That is not true in Illinois. In Illinois, you can drink under the age of 21 as long as you're enrolled in a culinary program. That makes sense, though, because wine tasting becomes a thing, and you know. I guess, but it's like, can you just like go to a bar and be like, I don't have my ID. It's cool. Let me show you my school ID for culinary school. <laughs> so... I don't know about you. I generally always still carry cash on myself, even if it's a couple bucks. Do you usually carry cash, Eden? I'm bad about that. I should, but I don't do it. Well, you got to be careful when you go to Illinois then because you can be arrested for vagrancy if you do not have at least $1 bill on your person. Okay, so I'm just going to take that $1 bill and shove it down my pants. (laughs) You're like, I have an iPhone. I'm not a vagrant. (laughs) Uh, Other interesting weird laws i've found in illinois it's illegal to give a dog whiskey okay that should be illegal in probably every state and it's also technically illegal for that dog to drink the whiskey he can go to jail i guess wow puppy jail puppy jail english is not to be spoken in the state of illinois the official state language is quote-unquote american what what i feel like you have the same feelings i have about that that's very very (laughs) weird it's so weird it just reminds me of the craft. We're like, why are we learning French? This is L.A. We should be learning Mexican or something. Yeah. Uh, it's Spanish. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> Other things I actually think make good sense is this law. I, I don't know. I've never actually been to a barber, and I also don't grow facial hair, so I don't know how invasive this would be. But Oh, come on. I think your beard looks nice. I think it's, for, it's called beard cream. <laughs> <laughs> but it's illegal for barbers to use their fingers to apply shaving cream to a customer's face what do they have to use like the brush i guess the brush right because i've seen them do that before i've never gone and gotten a shave at a barber because that just sounds really scary with that straight razor no thanks yeah yeah but like i don't know like i would just thought that's how barbers did it you know like yeah. they use the little brush for the fin- like someone's like rubbing their fingers all up on your face yeah <laughs> so gross get those oils on there and then the last one uh, I had to save for last. Save for the best one, I should say. I save for last. Okay. Hit me with it. It's so weird. If you eavesdrop on a conversation, you can be charged with a class four felony and sentenced to up to three years in prison. Holy shit. That includes your own conversation. How can you eavesdrop on your own conversation? 
I don't know. Do you turn yourself in? Is that how it works? Yeah. Like, I don't. <laughs> I have so many questions. I know. I couldn't find anything else about this. I'm like, what do you, what? First of all, this one girl at my job probably would have been arrested multiple times because every single time you'd have a conversation, especially if it'd be with a supervisor or a manager, mm-hmm. she'd be like, in your face, listen, not crazy. Mm-hmm. Her eyes would go like that. Um, What was that? Was it a chipmunk? That dun, 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 that chipmunk. That, oh, yeah. And it would get like, the dramatic chipmunk. Yeah, that's the what dramatic it was. chipmunk. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's how her face would look. <laughs> and she'd like creep in. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the weird, strange laws for Illinois. Thank you, Nicole. I liked it. So I have a great true crime story. For me, it really hits all those things I love. And you'll find out what I mean by that in short order. I can't wait to hit the things you love. (laughs) So we're going back to Chicago for today's true crime story. In our last episode, Eden did a really good job telling you all about Chicago and all the awesome things you can do there. So I figured I'd just remind you about a couple things about the lovely city of Chicago and then tell you a little bit more about its amazing history. So Chicago is not only the largest city in Illinois, but it's the third most populous city in the United States. And it does have a very long history of achievements and also nefarious activities. I'm sure it does. Right. So people think about the Columbian Exposition, like all the amazing inventions that were displayed. But then also you have things like gangsters, like yes. Al Capone. That's exactly what I think of when I think of Chicago. Right. It's those two things. You're like, oh, yeah. Wow. And wind because it's the Windy City. The Windy City. It's also called the second city, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. Because you be the second largest after New oh, York. Oh, okay. I was yeah. like, what's the first? While indigenous people like the Miami, the Sulk, the Fox, and the Potawatomi lived in the area that became Chicago for centuries, there's pretty much always been people there. The first permanent European settler was Jean-Baptiste Pont du Sable, commonly known as the founder of Chicago. Du Sable was of French and African ancestry, and he arrived in the area in the 1780s. He was the first to actually establish a permanent settlement by setting up a successful trading post near the mouth of the Chicago River. Okay, yeah, I think I read about that when doing my yeah, notes, too. Yeah, very interesting. For Chicago. Chicago remained a relatively small settlement through the end of the 18th century, and the town wasn't officially incorporated until 1833, when the number of residents reached a whopping 200 people. Wow, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. 200. It's almost as many people as I graduated high school with. Right. <laughs> Now, the area of Chicago is pretty attractive. It's surrounded by these fertile open plains. It had lots of clean, fresh water in terms of a river and a lake. And it brought a steady stream of settlers to the area over the next decade or two. So these people did not chase waterfalls. They stuck to the rivers and the lakes that they were used to? Accurate statement. Nice. As the United States headed into the Civil War, Chicago saw a huge spike in growth. During the 1850s and 1860s, the population jumped over 400%. And Chicago continued to be one of the fastest-growing cities in the world for the remainder of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. One huge driver of new people coming to Chicago was immigration. For the last two decades of the 19th century, Chicago was the destination for waves of immigrants from all over the world. A lot of them came from Europe, so including places like Ireland, Southern, Central, Eastern Europe. So you had a lot of Italians, Jews, Poles, Greeks, Lithuanians, Bulgarians. You get the picture. All moving to Chicago to start a better life. Now, these immigrants, along with a massive influx of African-Americans leaving Southern states, formed the backbone of Chicago's working class. 
which basically helped drive the city's economic engine and build out the rapidly needed infrastructure for the city. So things like the L train, modern sewage, those kind of things that allowed the city to expand. As these new residents settled into Chicago, they often tended to live in the same neighborhoods. So while a lot of American cities have a Chinatown or a little Italy, Chicago has those neighborhoods plus a Greek town, a German town, a Swedish enclave called Andersonville, a historically Czech neighborhood called Pilsen, and the neighborhood that is our stop for today, the Polish downtown neighborhood. All right. Now, uh, quick caveat. Uh, My story today has a lot of Polish names in it, so I'm going to try my best. So many consonants. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to try my best. I am not very fluent in in Polish, so... Nope, not at all. I'm just going to apologize now if I butcher some of these names, but I will try my best. Remember I had a friend whose last name was Mankowski, mm-hmm. and to remember it, he's like, think about a man and a cow, and they're skiing. <laughs> I like that. Now, Chicago actually boasts the highest concentration of Polish speakers outside of Poland, and the Polish downtown is really the historical center of it all. I never knew that. I did not either. As Chicago's oldest and most prominent Polish settlement, Polish downtown is sometimes called Little Poland or the Polish Village. And it really was this political, cultural, and social capital of not only Poles in the Chicago area, but Polish Americans throughout basically all of the Midwest. Even today, you can still find a lot of Roman Catholic churches. You can discover more about Polish culture at the Polish Museum of America. And you can enjoy Eastern European theater productions at the Chopin Theater. Very nice. All located in the Polish downtown. Very nice. Uh, and I know you and I both love snacks, so I did have to point out that you can find lots of traditional Polish treats like pierogies and borscht and cabbage rolls. I was like, everything with cabbage and then pierogies. Yes, cabbage and potatoes, so good. Um, That is also very prominent in the Polish downtown. Now, for our story, we're going to head back to the Polish downtown of 100 years ago, where almost all the residents of the neighborhood were ethnic Poles, And that included a repeatedly widowed woman who had a reputation for excellent Polish cooking and accurate and deadly premonitions. Oh, interesting. This is the story of Tilly Klimek, Chicago's most prolific female serial killer. Wow, okay. She was born in Poland in 1877 as Otilia Breck, the first of seven children of Michael and Michelina Breck. When she was about four years old, her parents decided that their family's future was in America, so they left Poland and settled in Chicago's Polish community. There's not a lot of info about Tilly's childhood after arriving in Chicago, but we do know that she married Joseph Mitkiewicz in 1895. The marriage seemed to be relatively happy. However, around 1913, Tilly began telling her neighbors that she had started to have these really strange dreams about Joseph's impending death. The dreams had started several months earlier when she would dream about these neighborhood dogs and how she would find them dead at her doorstep. And then, according to Tilly, shortly after her dreams, these dogs would either die or disappear from the neighborhood. Weird. Right? Now she was dreaming about her husband of almost 20 years growing sick and dying. Just watch, she would tell neighbors. Joseph will be dead in a few weeks. Is she another freaking poisoner? Okay, Maybe. you said it hits all the spots that you like, so I know what's going on here. 
when you said about delicious Polish food, mm-hmm. I was just like, is it going to be poisoned? I have a feeling it's going to be poisoned. Poison pierogies. Oh, my favorite kind. Just like mama used to make. Mm, what's that? What's that unique flavor I'm tasting? Arsenic. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so when Joseph fell ill and died in January 1914, the coroner did his due diligence and autopsied the body and decided that Joseph had died of quote-unquote heart trouble. Okay, makes sense with what we've learned Mm -hmm, many mm -hmm. times over. Her friends and neighbors were a little unsettled by the accuracy of Tilly's prediction, but they were glad to hear at least she'd be taken care of. You see, Joseph had life insurance, and Tilly received a cash payment of $1,000. Okay, which is probably a lot for back then. Yeah, probably. And keep in mind, she was an immigrant, and and the way that parts of the Polish downtown were kind of described at this time is that it was a more... Uh, it was a more poor area. That's it's like a I'm working thinking. class neighborhood. Yeah. So a thousand bucks is probably quite the windfall for somebody living in that neighborhood. Yeah. And then there was also a new man who quickly popped up in the grieving widow's life. Ooh, romance. Mm-hmm. His name was John Rakowski, another resident of the Polish downtown who worked as a laborer. With that last name? No. I know. It's shocking. Tilly and Rakowski were married less than two months after her first husband's death. But soon... Tilly's prophetic dreams were back. She dreamt of discovering Rakowski's body, specifically on a date, May 20th. Friends were shocked when they heard her prediction. Rakowski was the picture of health. He was a pretty strong, robust man in his 30s. Yeah. But as spring 1914 came around, Rakowski's health started to fade, and he was indeed dead by May 20th, just like Tilly predicted. Gee, I wonder how all this is happening. It's crazy. Such his- accurate predictions. I know. His death resulted in a $2,000 inheritance and insurance payout for Tilly. Nice. So it just keeps moving on up. Ka-ching. Rumors about this prophetic widow began to swirl around the Polish community, and Tilly started having even more prophetic dreams, this time about other folks who lived in the neighborhood. Oh, my God. Often she would predict the serious illness of family members or neighbors. Oddly enough, they tended to be people who she had a disagreement with or found annoying. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Not at all suspicious. Uh-uh. The subject of the premonition would suddenly get very ill, and a few of them even died, just as Tilly predicted. My God. You would think that this reputation of like accurately predicting people's demises would kind of turn people off from wanting to see her and date her. Yeah. Uh, you would think that. No. That just wasn't the case with Tilly. Now, and it wasn't like she was some kind of stunning beauty or okay. super charming. That's what I was going to ask. No. All the accounts, which are very unlike some other uh, lady criminals we've talked about in the past... Do not match Tilly. She's described over and over again as rather plain, squat, homely, and she was also middle-aged. She was in her late 40s. All of the, uh, the words that you would love to be described as great. <laughs> oh, also, even though she had been in the country since she was four years old, she only spoke broken English. Oh. And... Since she was four and she's still... Yep. Okay. One redeeming factor I did find in several sources was that Tilly was apparently a very, very good cook. And would often have people in the community over for dinner and church and cook for church events and things like that. People would rave about her cooking. Oh, no. <laughs> so I guess that means. Go one of two places or maybe both of those places. Who knows? We'll find out. <laughs> so I guess that means that the way to a man's heart really is through his stomach. I don't know. Eden, thoughts on that one? Well, I mean, I know I love my food, so I'd probably be dead in an instant. But, <laughs> you know. All right. That's fair. Either way, the rumors did not dissuade her next beau, a guy named John Grakowski. 
Now, he started dating Kelly in 1915, and the two of them seemed to get along well enough, but Gregowski seemed a bit hesitant to actually, you know, take the leap and marry Tilly. Soon, she told Gregowski that she'd had a dream about his death and was worried about him, that they should get married, and just in case. He was like, yeah, okay, whatever, you're so crazy. Mm-hmm. After he received a box of candy from Tilly as a gift, he shared it with his sister, Stella. Both of them grew incredibly ill. While his sister recovered, Tilly's boyfriend succumbed to his illness. Oh. Comma, mysteriously. Yes. But don't worry about old Tilly. She found love again. I'm sure she did. (laughs) What a woman. What a woman. In 1919, she married Frank Kupchik. Frank moved in with Tilly at 924 North Winchester Avenue, where she had moved after the death of her second husband. He also wasn't the first man that neighbors had seen living with Tilly. A man who went by the name of Myers lived there for a few months the previous year. But he had gone missing after a while. I'm sure he did. My <laughs> God. How is no one noticing anything? This bad luck surrounding this woman. She's, she can't help it. She's like a Cassandra. She just sees death and doom everywhere. Oh, this poor woman. I feel so bad for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I'm pretending I don't know what's going on and it's wonderful. The marriage between Tilly and Frank, surprise, surprise, quickly soured. Soon... She told Frank that she had started dreaming about his death and that it would, quote, happen very soon. Frank straight up laughed at her. And then a few days later, he started to get sick. Tilly told neighbors that Frank was, quote, would not live long. When Frank grew so sick, he became bedridden. Tilly would taunt him, saying things like, quote, it won't be long now, Frank. And you'll be dying soon. God. I wonder if she, like, stitched that onto a little embroidered pillow for his bed. As soon as you said it won't be long now, it made me think of when my grandmother was in hospice and it was horrible, but like the one nurse came in and she felt my grandmother's feet. She's like, oh, she turned out. She's like, oh, her feet are cold. It won't be long now. Creepy. And just left. And I'm like, why would, why you-, would you say that to grieving family no, members? not appropriate. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Ugh. Tilly that had the same sick awful. sense of not understanding things too. I oh, think. great. She would joke with neighbors on Winchester Avenue that he had, quote, two inches to live, end quote, which I don't understand what that means, but maybe it's a Polish idiom, but two inches to live could be a dick joke. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I had a small (laughs) penis, but I don't know. Well, as Tilly, quote unquote, cared for Frank, she began preparing his death by sitting at his bedside and knitting herself a mourning hat. And she also went out and found a great deal on a bargain coffin. Oh, great. Good for yeah. her. Yep. Planning ahead. She was so the confident. Thrifty in this shopper. Predi- thrifty predicting widow again. <laughs> and sure enough, by 1921, Frank was dead until he once again was cashing a $1,000 life insurance check and looking for a new man. Wow. At this point, her death omen dreams were becoming legendary in Chicago's Polish community. So when Tilly married her fourth husband, Joseph Klemek, in the summer of 1921, his family was reasonably concerned about the union. Uh, yeah, because some people aren't stupid. Yeah, exactly. Now, Klimek was pretty well off compared to Tilly's previous husband, so this was pretty much her big fish. But she complained that he drank too much and too often, and she discovered shortly after they were married that he had a tendency of a roving eye, and he kind of would pay too much attention to other women in, in the community. Oh, So, concerned and a bit jealous, Tilly complained to one of her closest confidants, her cousin, Nellie Kulik. 
she suggested that Tilly should just divorce Clemmick, but Tilly replied that she, quote, get rid of him some other way. Oh. I wonder so what she's, she's going to not do. Even being like This is her bestie. About this, this is her bestie. It's like her cousin Nelly is like her bestie. Oh, great. So after pers- Thanks, Kim. <laughs> so after persuading her husband to take out a large life insurance policy, Tilly put her plan into action and Clemmick started to grow sick. He would experience shooting pains and then numbness in his arms and hands. And then six weeks after taking oh out God, his I new... I get that too. <gasps> She's probably poisoning me as we speak. Salem, are you poisoning daddy? That's Salem, it is. He had a vision that I was not giving for this world. You weren't giving enough kibble and he knew something was wrong. <laughs> uh, so six weeks after he takes out this insurance policy, uh, Klimek can't feel his legs and he's paralyzed and bedridden. Great. And this is when he finally contacts his doctor about coming to see him for an in-home visit. Good, because doctors did house calls then. Mm-hmm. His doctor goes, does a perfunctory exam, and immediately calls an ambulance to take Klimek to the hospital. At the hospital, he's tested for heavy metal poisoning, and they discover that he has high levels of arsenic in his body. Hmm. Hmm. Where did that come from? That's exactly what the doctors asked them, Eden. <laughs> And the clinic was kind of like, I'm not sure, but I, our dog died a couple weeks ago. And it was right after Tilly gave him a little bit of table scrap. Oh, my God. She killed the dog. She killed the dog. Oh, why, Tilly? Why? I can forgive you for killing all the humans, but not the dog. <laughs> On October 27th, 1922, hospital officials alerted police of Clemick's suspicions and Tilly was arrested. Apparently, she told the arresting officer, quote, the next one I want to cook dinner for is you. You've made all of my troubles. But imagine that in like broken English with okay. a Polish accent. Either way. I cook for you dinner. You make troubles. You make all of my troubles. I don't know. I don't even know what a Polish accent sounds like. So I did vaguely Eastern Europe. Exactly. I'm like, it's something like that, right? Now, police question Tilly for 18 hours before she confesses to the poisoning of Klemek. And then things get even crazier. When the police ask her where she got the poison she used on Klemek, she says her dear cousin, Nellie Kulik, gave her, uh, gave her a, quote, good amount of a product called Rough on Rats. What? Oh, man, she's selling out her cousin. <laughs> yep. And this Rough on Rats product was basically this household mixture of, like, soot and arsenic that you use to poison rats. Oh, great. The police then exhume the bodies of Tilly's three form former husbands and her boyfriend who had all died up after a sudden illness and surprise surprise all of them tested for excessively high amounts of arsenic great after this revelation friends and neighbors began to come to the police in droves they had all these stories about people around them who had gotten sick or even died after eating dinner or having candy they received from tilly and her cousin nelly it seemed that the two cousins had basically been slipping poison to any quote-unquote pests they encountered didn't matter if they were another family member, a neighbor, or a stray cat or dog that was just pestering the neighborhood. Oh, my God. Nellie was also arrested on these tips from neighbors, and police confirmed a list of 20 different people who had been poisoned by the two women over the years, at least 14 of which had died as a result. Wait, Nicole, I just did a vision that your story's coming to a close. <gasps> Eden! Is that accurate? How did you know? Oh, I don't know. It's a, it's a gift. A gift from God. Did you dream it? I did, yes. Ugh, dreams are always correct. <laughs> I'm going to wake up naked tomorrow in high school again. Psst. Let's hope not. I have those <laughs> dreams too. I hate when I dream that I'm back in high school because I never have any idea why it's going on. And I can never find my way to my classes. So back to Tilly and her victims. 
The list is pretty crazy long. So it's not just her husbands and boyfriends. It was also a couple of her stepchildren, four of her cousins, a couple of neighbors, her sister-in-law, and then Nellie's victims are even worse. They include her first husband, four of her own children, and her granddaughter. Oh my God. Wait, this was the cousin? Yeah, the cousin. So the, Holy crap. These two are just like poisoning people hand over fist, basically. Like, come wow. and get your borscht. Don't mind that extra spiciness. Yeah, right. It's paprika. It's fine. <laughs> Local newspapers, of course, went to town on this story. And they would print these wild accusations that Tilly Klimek was actually the, quote, high priestess of a bluebeard clique hell-bent on poisoning the husbands of the Polish oh community God. in Chicago. Yeah. That's great. It got so bad that several other women from the Polish downtown were arrested under suspicion of poisoning. Of course, they were all released and clear, but they still went ahead and arrested about two dozen people. Women, I should say. Oh, my God. Yeah. So after this hysteria dies down, Tilly heads to trial. Throughout the trial, Tilly wore that same black hat she knitted for her husband, Frank, when he died (laughs) and was pretty much nonchalant and unaffected by the whole thing. When prosecutors read a list of her victims in court, pausing after each name to ask, did you kill this person? Tilly would kind of just shrug and go, yeah. Like, what? Whatever. I guess I'm caught. The jig is up. So they had this ton ton of evidence to convict Tilly of several different murders, but they really focused on the murder of her third husband, Frank Kupchik. And that was mostly because they had a very clear motive that all those witnesses of her like telling them that he's going to die. Yeah. And as a result, she was convicted of his first degree murder in March of 1923. Tilly appeared super underwhelmed by the verdict when it was read. Her only remark was, quote, it was hot in there. And they let her out of the courtroom and back to jail. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, she just, like, does not give a fuck. She really doesn't care. Mm-mm. Now, Tilly Klimek was sentenced to life in prison, which was the harshest sentence that had ever been handed out to a woman at that time in Cook County history. Her cousin, Nellie Kulik, was jailed for almost a year while her own trial dragged on. Uh, she was housed with Tilly for most of that time. And because Tilly's Tilly, she would regularly torment her cousin. Oh my God. One sick sad story that I found in a couple sources was that when Tilly was bored, she basically tried to convince Nellie that she would be hanged without a trial because that's how they did things, quote, in America. Oh, great. So one day when the guards came to take Nellie from her cell, Tilly starts whispering to her in Polish, Ooh, they're going to hang you today, Nellie. Which basically made Nellie scream in panic and fight the guards. Oh my God. And the guards are like, We're just taking you to court. This woman is an asshole. Yes, she is. Eventually, Nellie was released because her trial ended in a hung jury. It was most likely because of all the pl- publicity and the confessions that... They didn't have two inches to live. Oh, <laughs> I got you good with that you one. did. <laughs> <sighs> so she, she, uh, her jury was hung. <laughs> And mostly it was because of the publicity and the confessions that Tilly gave at her own trial. Uh, as for Tilly Klimek, she spent the rest of her life in jail at the Juliet Correctional Center. She died there on November 20th, 1936, at age 60. Wow. So, Eden, thoughts? Can I get you a pierogi? Um, maybe I'm off pierogies for a little while. <laughs> um, that was nuts. Right? She is evil. And I mm-hmm. also want to know, with her amazing gift... 
how did she not see her arrest coming? Right. Or maybe she did. And that's why she was so just resigned to her fate. Like, yeah, just take me to jail. It was hot in there. You know, she had a dream. It was destiny. Yeah. You can't avoid destiny, I guess. Ah, uh, yeah. So that's another one of my favorite lady poisoners in the books. Yeah. Because it's like, ooh, nuts. I've never heard of her before. And yeah. I really like that. Yeah. That's why I was so excited to tell you. I'm like, I had a great story. Nice. So my sources for this week's story were uh, Wikipedia, MidwestWeekends.com, BrightsParkTravel.com, Murderpedia, Medium.com, and the book Women Who Kill, A Chilling Case Study of True Life Murderers by Al Cimino. Very nice. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with a weird news story and my story for Illinois. Yay! We'll be right back. And we're back. We're back. And I have a delightful weird news story for you. All right, let's get weird. This one actually comes from the Dodo. I love the Dodo. Yeah, so you know there's going to be animals involved. It's dog walks into police station and convinces cops to let his owner go free. What? Yes. What a good boy. So this happened in the Dominican Republic. Uh, They arrested a man for uh, breaking the local curfew laws. I'm assuming due to like coronavirus, they enforce curfew like they do here. Um, And the police were, um, they're arresting him. But the dog follows him, walks into the police station, and then like just keeps pestering the cops (laughs) until they let him go. So the article says, the other evening, police in the Dominican Republic arrested a man for reportedly breaking local curfew laws, which were put in place last month to address the coronavirus pandemic. But thanks to a faithful friend of the arrestee, he wasn't held for long. After the man was handcuffed and taken to the police station for processing, officers there watched as an unexpected visitor strolled through the doors to appeal for his release. It was the man's dog, who, as it turns out, is an adorably persuasive advocate. Seeing how attached the pup was to his owner, authorities decided to let the man off with a warning rather than keep them apart. Uh, You know why I'm going to let him go? Because that dog came and told me the man was his. And that's why I'm going to let him go, Police Colonel Jose Francisco de la Cruz Mercedes said. (laughs) It's the first time I have handed over a prisoner to a dog. (laughs) The pup's plan had worked, and he couldn't have been happier. Hopefully the man has learned his lesson and will be able to stay out of trouble going forward. His faithful pup no doubt agrees. That's super weird, but also really delightful. Very charming. I Mm -hmm. thought we could use a pick-me-up this time. Man's best friend. Yeah, I thought that was great. All right, so I guess I will jump into my story. Yeah, let's let's find out what our haunted story is for, or paranormal, I should say. Yeah, it's a haunting, but yeah. So my story for this week takes place in Decatur, Illinois. Decatur is in Macon County, of which it is the county seat as well as being the largest city in that county. It was founded in 1829 and is in central Illinois. Its population is about... 76,122 and has an area of 47 square miles. The city has has seen a population decline over the last decade and actually lost 7.1% of its population between 2010 and 2019. Wow. As for its history, its name comes from Stephen Decatur, who was a naval hero in the War of 1812. This town also ties into one of Nicole's stories, sharing a central quote-unquote character, Frank Lloyd Wright. Ooh. He built the Edward P. Irving House in 1911 in Decatur. If you're looking for things to do here in this city, it has a ton of varied activities. If you want to check out the animals, you can head on down to the Scoville Zoo 
I don't know where it ranks on the scale, though. Fair enough. If you want to do something educational with the family, you can visit the Children's Museum of Illinois, which features interactive art and science exhibits. And for nature lovers, there are several parks, conservation areas, and bodies of water to check out as Decatur is along the Sangamon River and Lake Decatur. If you're up for some higher learning, along with some higher spooking, which I'll be talking to you about soon, you can attend Milliken University, the subject of today's story. Mm, Higher spooking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this school was proposed in 1900 by the wealthiest man in Macon County, James Milliken. Milliken's money came from selling government land purchases that he had made, and he ended up being rich off of this. Uh, while he's mostly just known for starting the college named after him, he is also known for reopening a bank in town called the Railroad Bank, which had failed. The townspeople of Decatur begged him to reopen it, and he was like, yeah, cool, I can do that. Uh, just name it after me. And they did, calling it the Milliken Bank. <laughs> that seems pretty straightforward. However, he didn't actually pay for the creation of the university all on his own. He actually wanted the city residents and the church to each come up with $100,000 by January 1st of 1901. Yikes, that's quite a quite a chunk of change. Yeah, it was May when he brought this idea to them, <laughs> and that's a little over half a year. That's seven months to somehow come up with $200,000. Like, hey guys, I have a great idea. In late 1800s money, too. So, <laughs> yeah. So he's like, I have an idea. You guys do this. Okay, thanks. Bye. Luckily, before this, the Presbyterian Church had already created a college back in 1865 called Lincoln University, and I believe that's in Lincoln, Illinois, if it's the same one. And they were able to have an arrangement with the school and were able to come up with the money in the allotted time frame. Wow, they pulled it off. Yep. In 1901, charters were made, and a Chicago architecture firm was chosen to design the school. They also decided on the location, a place called Oakland Park, which was already owned by Milliken. And at this point, it was just a bunch of trees. There was nothing really on it. Hmm. The building is made of semi-vitrified rough face brick with terracotta ornamentation in the Elizabethan style, which is a direct quote from Milliken.edu. Interesting. I'm trying to picture that in my head. And I just picture like Oxford-esque buildings. Yeah, I had to. It's it's a pretty place. Uh, I had to look it up. I didn't know what vitrified meant. Because I just, yeah, I had no clue at all what that meant. And it means to turn something into glass or a glass-like substance, uh, which they accomplished by exposing it to heat. Okay, so it's shiny? I guess. Uh, I guess it's, since it's semi-vitrified that it's like kind of brick and kind of glass. So it's sparkly. Maybe. Cool. Sparkles like Edward Cullen. <laughs> um, but in a very educated way. Yes. So they opened bids for the construction process on February of 1902 and had hoped to have it completed and the school opened in September of the same year, but they had a few delays and setbacks. They seemed to have hired some subpar contractors, so the work wasn't done right and they were also finding it difficult to get the materials. They also had a problem building uh, certain things because of the West End Lake, which they eventually just drained in that area. (laughs) Like, guys, seriously, this lake is a pain in the ass. Just get rid of it. And it's weird because um, a lot of people believe that the reason this place is haunted today is because they drain the lake. Really? They say that, like, the water underneath some of the buildings is, like, what's causing the hauntings because spirits are attracted to water or some such stuff. Mm. I don't know. I never heard that before. But 
I mean, it did, it would align if there was some kind of, you know, we've talked before about like areas that have been uh, guarded by nature spirits. Yeah. Things like that, like around Detroit and things. And that's also water related. That could make sense. But this is definitely not nature spirits. We'll get into it, though. Oh, intriguing. This caused the school's opening date to be delayed for an entire year. Uh, there is some good news, though. And don't worry. I know I've already used the I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance by switching to Geico joke, so I won't again. But I will say that Geico should sponsor us, especially if the endorsement comes with a lower rate on my home and auto insurance. Uh, anyway, the good news is that the first floor wall, uh, first floor walls were up on June 12th of 1902. And they even had a ground laying ceremony performed by the Freemasons. Oh. Maybe that's why it's haunted now, because I really don't know what they actually are all about. Even though my grandfather was uh, pretty high level in the Masons, I think he was like 33rd degree and he ran his lodge. Does it make you a legacy if you want to join the Masons? I think so. You should join. Let me know. I should join and just find out what it's all about. Um, my grandmother's also an Eastern star, which is like the Freemasons, but it's for women and men. Mm. Because they don't let women join since it's right. a sacred brotherhood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a dedication ceremony on June 4th of 1903. And the address was given by none other than President Teddy Roosevelt. Really? Yeah, I thought that was cool. I love when presidents make an appearance in our stories. It makes me feel all fancy. <laughs> Very presidential. Oh, yes. They were able to open for classes on September 15th, 1903. They used the West Wing for economics, finance, and engineering. Snooze. Well, engineering might be cool, but economics and finance classes are so freaking boring to me. I can't do them. You mean you don't want to learn how to balance a ledger? Ugh. No, no, not at all. Um, it's in this wing where the business office is today. Okay. There was a chemistry lab on the third floor, which I'm sure Walter White would love. You know, some place where he could just meth around. <laughs> If you don't get this joke, you must have been living under a rock in 2008. The center building uh, handled the art and music classes. The library was also in this center building, which was led by the librarian Eugenia Allen, who spells her last name like Gigi Allen, so I already like her. <laughs> so um, she worked there from 1903 to 1910 and again from 1914 to 1947. Okay. The library sounds pretty swanky, too, from what I was able to find. It had two levels connected by a spiral staircase. Sadly, it sounds like this is all gone now, and as of 2000, it became the Office of Student Life and Academic Development. Mm. I think it has, like, a freestanding library now, and it's not, like, in the building. Yeah, like, expanded, and they needed some other building. Yeah. Uh, there uh, was a gym under uh, the Albert Taylor Theater, too, back then. Because uh, they had a theater that they named after Albert Taylor. Uh, if I remember correctly, I read somewhere when doing these notes that Albert Taylor was the president of the school. Gotcha. Uh, so they had a gym there. Now it's just used to house um, props and stuff like mm. that. It's not really a gym anymore. Um, there was a very sexist rule, but this was also the early 1900s, so not out of the ordinary for the time. They stated that women could not go across campus in gym clothes. Well, I mean, propriety's sake. I know. Heavens to Betsy. How dare they possibly show their knees or shoulders? Ooh. Ugh, how crude. Skanks. All of them. Every <laughs> last one. So uh, the East Wing held the domestic economy department, which was things like culinary arts, ceramics, and stuff like that. A.K.A. for the ladies. Yep, pretty much. 
Because why would men want to do such a thing? Gasp. Mm -mm. Uh, The ceramics workshop was in the basement and the mathematics department is what was once the sewing room. Well, okay then. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why they chose to do what they did. I want to get my degree in sewing so I can learn the optimal way with my string arts. Exactly. I don't know. I just want to learn how to thread a bobbin correctly because I can't do that for (laughs) shit. I'll get it so hopelessly jammed. I've broken so many sewing machines with my incorrect bobbin threading. I can't do it. For the first few years, the school went by quarters until around uh, 1905 when they started doing semesters instead. Okay. They also used to have a prep school on campus from 1906 to 1920, but they stopped having classes in there in 1916. The first women's dorms were opened in 1907. I'm assuming they only had male residence halls before that. That would make sense, I think. But they're kind of just like, get with the times. Come on, let's. There's ladies who want to get educated, too. We have that sewing room and everything. Yeah, there's a sewing room for them. The one thing these ladies will be able to do at our college. (laughs) Don't forget about ceramics, Eden. No, ceramics. I'm so sorry. And possibly cooking. Mm -hmm. Because a woman's place is in the kitchen. Making clothes. (laughs) Making clothes and making meals. Um, Okay. So um, there was a dining hall in the basement of this building, and lunch only cost seven cents. That's a bargain. Yes, it is. I did find out a few interesting things besides the structure of the building, like the fact that when Milliken died in 1909, his funeral services were actually held in the school's assembly hall, and a horse-drawn carriage carted his body around. Okay. Yeah. Weird. Uh, it seems like he didn't really have a whole lot to do with the school. Like, people knew him, but he never really spoke or addressed anything, like, when he was there. Yeah, it was just, like, he, it was his land. He was around. And he helped brought the money for it. It would, like, oversee things, but yeah. not. Yeah, he didn't really talk much. This college also has a weird connection to the Little Mermaid. What? Yeah. Both uh, the original Ariel and the 1989 Little Mermaid animated film, Jody Benson, and Sierra Bogus, Bogus, who played Ariel in the original 2007 run of The Little Mermaid on Broadway, both graduated from Millican University. Hmm. Fun connection. Yeah. Hetty Burris was also a graduate and did the voice of Yuna from Final Fantasy X, which was the first Final Fantasy game to be fully voiced. A contestant on the ninth season of American Idol, who made it to the top 16, was also from this school. Her name is Caitlin Epperly. Uh, Annie Wershing who played Renee Walker on 24, went to Milliken, as well as a contemporary Christian artist named Matthew West. Herbert D. Ryman, who worked for Disney as an artist and Imagineer, went to the school here as well. And he was also the chief designer of Cinderella's Castle. So this place has some major Disney connections. Yeah. Uh, There's also been a ton of athletes who came out of this place. And speaking of coming out, if anyone listening watches RuPaul's Drag Race, a season 12 contestant named Gigi Good went there too. Now for the good stuff. This place is another one that's supposed to be hella haunted. Okay. Apparently the hauntings may not have originated with the college, and there were actually reports of paranormal activity as early as Decatur's original settling. Really? Uh, Supposedly the land was haunted by the spirits of the Native American tribes that once inhabited the area. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'd, I'd be gone at that point. I've seen Poltergeist, and I'm not getting sucked into any TVs, nor am I peeling my face off in a bathroom. Big <laughs> note from me. So this may just be a legend, though, as my source said that this was something people would tell their children to keep them home after dark. So it may just be like a village situation. Sorry if I spoiled the M. Night Shyamalan plot for you guys, but, you know. 
you know what? It's been a decade or more, so get on board. That's like the spoiler rule, right? Like after 10 years, it's like... It's fine, yeah. Yeah. So it's okay. been almost 20. We're good. Our first ghost that I will talk about, because there's even more than I'm going to be able to list, I'm sure, uh, but this one haunts the Albert Taylor Theater. Okay. This ghost is known as the Rail Girl. The Rail Girl? Rail Girl, which is obviously so easy for me to say since I almost messed up on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's known as the Rail Girl. She's called this because she normally appears by a railing on the upper part of the theater. She's a bit of a tricky one since sometimes she'll actually appear and other times she'll just cause general mayhem associated with the theater. <laughs> so forget about that whole Macbeth curse because she's got all that covered all on her own. Look out for Rail Girl. Yep. Rail Girl is uh, a little girl who really wants attention and she'll make weird noises. Uh, people can hear her walking around and she loves to steal and move things. Mm. It's tradition at the school to leave three pieces of candy to appease her spirit before a performance. She gets a little cranky without her sugar fix and she's messed with lighting, ruined performances and damaged rigging and props. She's messed with sound equipment and even injured a few people. Wow. One time during rehearsal back in the 90s, there was a student who didn't believe in Rail Girl and openly scoffed at her existence. Uh, not such a good idea. She was quoted as saying during the rehearsal when she had to walk down a flight of solid stairs on stage. So it's not like there's like slats in between the stairs. Mm-hmm. It's completely solid. Uh, she suddenly felt hands from below her grip her ankles and she fell cracking her head on the ground and blacking out oh my god yeah she wasn't able to perform that night and her understudy had to fill in (gasps) yep she says that although she um knows no one could have been below the stairs because like i said they were solid they weren't open she still doesn't know what exactly happened but after that she decided not to take any more chances and she always brought three pieces of candy to give a real real girl after this oh i'll tell you you know what happens is you're understudy brought five pieces of candy for rail girl yeah, and had right? a little chat and she's like she's my favorite now uh so in a less dangerous tale from a former student he said that rail girl stole a prop when he was supposed to be using it he was meant to talk on a rotary phone hang up say something to another actor and then turn back around and pick up that phone again mm-hmm. well he went back for the phone after saying his lines and it was just gone right in the middle of the performance what Yep. It's said that every theater student at the university has stories of Rail Girl, and she's definitely not someone I want to mess with. I agree, but side note, Rail Girl sounds like a really interesting superhero. It does. Name. I don't know. It reminds me of Tank Girl. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. I mean, that's why I'm so like, Real Girl. <clears throat> Love it. The old gym is also said to be haunted. Uh, that's under the theater? Yes. These seem more like residual energy than intelligent hauntings. Uh, So there may not be a need to call Zelda Rubenstein just yet. (laughs) So people can hear people running above their heads, which is probably due to the fact that the gym once had a track on the upper level. Mm. I'm pretty sure the track's still there, but they just use it for storage. Uh, You can also hear what pretty much amounts to the sound of a basketball game going on from inside the gym. Sounds of cheers and whistles can be heard as well as laughter and disembodied voices. Weird. One student said that he was there in the dark and heard the sound of someone dribbling a basketball, and it turned out that he was completely alone when he turned on the light, and there was also no basketballs present. That's unsettling in in a very specific way. It really is. Another person who was in the small dance studio in the gym alone one night 
said once she finished her choreography, um, she heard slow clapping coming from behind her. And when she turned around, no one was there. Creepy. So, I mean, at least that ghost was being encouraging and nice. Being like, you did a good job. Nice dance. Like, okay, what sarcastic asshole is watching me and not tell? What? Yeah, right. The gym, uh, like I said, is also used to uh, store things for the theater department. And back in the 70s, one faculty member said that she was finishing up with some costume design that she was doing in the gym. Mm -hmm. And she started hearing crying from downstairs. Uh, She went downstairs to check it out. And as my source stated, the sound grew louder with every step that she took and something just didn't feel right. The sounds grew louder and louder and became more of a scream the farther down she got. Uh, She made her way all the way down. And as soon as she turned on the light, the crying stopped. Oh, my God. Good for her for even making it down those stairs. I know. I would be like, nope, bolting. I know. As soon as it goes from like, (laughs) exactly, I'm out. Nope. She looked everywhere, but there was no one there and the area had been locked. So there's no way someone could have gotten in. No, nope, nope. I don't like that at all. Aston Hall is another haunted building on campus. It's that original dorm for women that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. According to the school records, a woman by the name of Bernice Richardson did commit suicide there in 1927 by ingesting carbolic acid, which is a poisonous chemical made from tar. It's used for plastic, nylon, epoxy, and to kill germs. What an awful way to go. Right? She did this because she had poor grades, which prevented her from going to a rush party. So she was just like, nope, can't do it. My life is over. Girl. There's more important things in life. Yeah, but when you're young, she apparently is quite solid for a ghost, and people living in the building have seen her quite a lot, but only ever from the waist up because she's a classy lady. Um, no ankles <laughs> her ankles are not showing uh, she's reported as going through the walls from one dorm room to the next on the third floor I can see where that might be a little terrifying to some people nope pass people have also noticed objects flying around or disappearing and knocking coming from inside the walls no thank you what yep oh like okay I understand like sometimes older buildings will have like a knocking sound and it's like the pipes pipes yeah and like that is unsettling in and of itself. I know what pipes sound like. Exactly. Because it happened in my parents' house. The pipes bang every time you take a shower, flush the toilet, do yeah. whatever. But like a, like a solid like knock knock. I'm like uh uh-uh. yeah. Because you no, know, that's more of a banging, and this yeah. is that this is like a. Mm-mm. Some of the Greek houses on campus are haunted as well, which is kind of interesting since the original school charter expressly forbade Greek houses. Interesting. Zeta Tau Alpha, which is not a house anymore, is said to house the spirit of a maid. Mm. I hope she just cleans things. That would be a good ghost. I'll take that one. That sounds like a hellish existence, though, when you die and you're trapped as a maid in a frat house. That sucks. Yeah, (laughs) because boys are not the cleanest. So is dirty. Kappa Sigma is haunted by a man named Nathan who is said to have committed suicide, uh, when um, that was still a boarding house, he okay. lived there and he committed suicide. I don't know why, though. Delta, 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 a sorority house where I assume the residents all wear, wear triple D bras. Oh, try Delta. Hey. <laughs> is also said to be haunted. There's cold spots, whispers, careless or otherwise. <laughs> and full bodied apparitions of a woman can be seen here. Is she dancing to a saxophone song? Sadly? Maybe. Okay. I don't think she's ever going to dance again, actually, because these guilty feet ain't got no rhythm. (laughs) You can see her feet this time. (laughs) 
Yeah, the other one's definitely not dancing. Uh, so a lot of girls who have lived in Triple D uh, have also said to uh, see this mystery woman standing over their beds when they're sleeping. What? Mm-mm. Major nope. no. No. No, because that's like a terrifying thing. Yep. One, but two, if you're also in a sorority, it could be like ha- like a not hazing. hazing ritual, but like you know, like a wake up, bitches. Yeah. Like oh, exactly. No thanks. Scrub the toilets with a toothbrush. Um. Oh, and she also likes to pull covers off of people. Gross. Yeah. No, like no, thank you. You know we love that one. Uh, there were uh, those were the ghosts that I was able to find out the most about. And there are said to be plenty more where that came from. All in all, I'd say this place seems like a really creepy place to go to school. And I would love to visit sometime and see what I can find. Maybe even leave some candy for a real girl because I'd rather not piss her off. So, Nicole, are you glad you didn't go to school here? Yes, I am. I I don't know if I could handle that, though. No. Like... There's always like rumors about like haunted things on campus and like students past. I mean, my college had a ton of them, but they weren't like anything that was consistently paranormal. It was just like, did you know this happened at this place? Did you know that I think happened? there's rumors at every college. Mm-hmm. Every college has has a dorm where a student killed themselves. Exactly. Yes. Which is like a sad and just speaks volumes about the higher education system in America. That is but true. Uh, I mean, this one's at least documented, so you know this one's mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That sounds creepy. It would be interesting to do like investigations there for oh, sure, yeah. just to see what you could turn up. Especially the theater and the gym. I think Me that too. seems like a big. Those are the big places yeah. that I want to go to. Yeah. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, Milliken.edu, HauntedIllinois.com. Um, I'm gonna have so much trouble saying this one. It's the school's newspaper, uh, Decaturian. De- Decatorian. Decatorian? Decatorian, I'm going to say. It's so tough to say that because yeah. it's just Decatur, I-A-N, <laughs> uh, dot com. Michaelclean.com and Ghosts of Millican, The History and Hauntings of Millican University by Troy Taylor. Side note, it's interesting that their newspaper was the Decaturian because like mine was the, well, we always had the debate because it's Wagner and it was like the w- Wagnerian or was it the Wagnerian? Wagnerian. <laughs> I like that one better. Because everything's better in German. Yep, yep. All right, guys, that was our show for today. If you would like to contact us for any reason, just to say hi, or if you know of any good stories that you would like to hear us cover, you want to share some of your own stories, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. If you're looking to take a break from your day and laugh at some great memes or just, you know, see what other people are saying about Roadside Horror Show. Some dank memes. Some dank memes, yo. You can stop by our Facebook or Instagram page. We are Roadside Horror Show. Or you can catch us on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can also visit our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. As always, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Design for our killer logo. Also, do not forget to um, tell your friends about us. And also, to if you like what we're doing, make sure to rate us and review us, please, on your favorite you know, whatever you listen to podcasts on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Until next time, guys. Creep, creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.